Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hello, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Gustav Alstromer, a partner at Y Combinator who's involved with their carbon investing and also the former product lead of growth at Airbnb. In this episode, we cover a number of topics, including what Y Combinator is up to with their carbon investing, Gustav's role, some of the history that led to them getting involved in this carbon investing, as well as an in-depth look at some of the companies that they've backed so far and what they look for in climate-focused startups. I left this conversation with a much better idea of how Y Combinator is thinking about these issues, and hopefully it'll be helpful to any aspiring entrepreneurs that are doing work in this area in terms of thinking through whether Y Combinator might be a fit. Without further ado, here's Gustav. Gustav, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jason. Well, I'm glad you're here. We had one meeting out in San Francisco, gosh, probably a few months ago now, but we've been emailing a bunch and you've pointed some deal flow my way. And I feel like you're, you're kind of a fellow traveler for me at this point in my climate journey. Yeah, I feel like I'm spending the journey too. It's been going on for a while, but it, there's so much new things to learn that, yeah, I feel like you, you're constantly learning when you're in this space. So, I mean, maybe that's where we should start is, I mean, I'm super curious. I don't think I asked you this question when we met either that your background looks kind of like my background. You grew up in consumer internet and now you're doing climate stuff. So how did that come about for you? How did that come about for YC? Like, how did you guys get here? Sure. Just want to like, I'm not doing 100% climate oriented stuff. That's not really what I'm working on at, at uh, YC, but I am involved in some of the things that we have funded. But it's not something that takes up most of my time. But I've been thinking about it for a long time, and I've been actively trying to fund companies that work on these problems. So I will talk about that for sure. So my background, I came to the U.S. a long time ago. I grew up in Sweden, and most recently before Y Combinator. So Y Combinator, I've been at for about two years as a partner. And before that, I worked as a, uh, initially a PM and then started the growth team at Airbnb, worked on that team and built it from like almost just a few people to a large team over almost five years. The one thing I would say, and the previous company before that was called Voxer, so Walkie Talkie App. So both Airbnb and Voxer was consumer companies for sure. And I worked on product and growth for both of them. The one thing I would say- And they uh, both got big, right? Both of them got pretty big. Well, Airbnb is automatically bigger than Voxer. But the one thing I learned at Airbnb is how valuable the scientific method can be for building product and doing growth. I.e., basically, there's a bunch of data, and then you can learn something from data, and the data tells you sort of like, what to do next. And, and we utilize that a lot in the growth team at Airbnb. And a lot of growth and the science of growth, in my opinion, is just math. Sort of like you add up a bunch of different sources of traffic and sort of how it converts. And then you do the calculations and you decide what to work on. I think that climate is very similar. It is very much a problem of math. It's a systemic problem, but it's something that where math plays an important role. Understanding sort of like what are the huge sources of emissions? How much does it cost to replace them with something new? Sort of like the idea of a carbon tax or price on carbon, like all of these things in some sense is quite similar in the sense that you use math to figure out sort of what to do next and what's important. So I would have to say that that's one of the things that connects these two things together. Besides that, 
I don't actually remember what made me curious about climate, but I've always been very curious about new technology. And I was particularly curious about how new to tech could help solve climate change. Everything from carbon removal to like decarbonization technologies, like electric cars, all of this stuff has always fascinated me. So that's sort of like, I guess, my background. I have a very pragmatic view on how to solve things. And I do believe that industry plays a very, very important role in this, even though it's like this, this is systemic and there's some political solution to it. But I do think the industry plays a very big, important role. And you mentioned that this stuff is only one aspect of your role at Y Combinator. So what are you doing at YC? Yeah, so I joined as a partner uh, about two years ago. Twice a year, we fund lots of startups, often the first money in and the first time those companies start working on their startups. And we have a program where we fund all kinds of companies now in every single categories. And they do our program for three to four months after that. And during that program, we help them immensely. The most important thing is sort of like, what should they be doing during just those three months? Just eliminate things that you can do as a new startup founder. And we try to focus them as much as we can. And then at the end of the program, we help companies with fundraising. So hopefully after those three or four months, the companies have raised funding and can continue kind of growing as startups. So for most of the time at YC, I work with these companies, typically between 30 and 40 companies for those three or four months twice a year. Between that, we have a long interview process and we have a bunch of other things that we do. And one of the things that we did, which was about a year ago or a little less than a year ago, is we put up something called Request for Startups. And this has been around for a long time within Y Combinator, where we publish a website, ycombinator.com slash RFS, where we just list the problems that we think are important to work on as an inspiration for people to start startups to work on those problems. And it serves two purposes. One is it actually inspires people to work on those things. And two, it tells the world that we're actually trying to fund companies that work on these things. Because sometimes when we say we fund everything, sometimes people still think that the thing that I'm working on isn't included in everything. So I better not apply because they will never accept me anyway. So that's sort of like the dual purposes of the request for startup document. And about a year ago, we put carbon removal technologies as one of the topics. And I was surprised how much interest it got from that post. And then a few months later, we put something called carbon.ycombinator.com, where we published a bunch of ideas of more radical or more kind of out there ideas on how you can remove carbon from the atmosphere. And as a result of that, we got lots of people to apply with ideas to remove carbon from the atmosphere. We've been funding decarbonization technologies for a long time, everything from electric flights to solar panel companies to all kinds of things, chemical companies. So we've been doing this for quite a while, but the specific focus on removing carbon from the atmosphere was something that we added about a year ago, and that's been very exciting since then. And looking at all the different areas that could affect climate change and decarbonization, what made you focus on carbon removal? Primarily because it was not a lot of people focusing on this. I came to the conclusion that we absolutely need to do, as a society, both decarbonize and remove carbon from the atmosphere. We have to do both. It's simply not enough to do just one of them. And there are lots of things in the world that we don't have any good ideas on how to decarbonize. So everything from steel production to concrete to flying across the globe, all kinds of things that are very difficult to decarbonize. And in addition to that, the I think the IPCC reports, nearly all of them suggest that there's a huge amount of carbon removal that is required. It's often not really specified how it's going to happen. Historically, people have just talked about, oh, you need to plant some more trees or do what we've done in the past. I think there are many different kind of categories of technologies in carbon removal that I find fascinating. But we funded a couple of companies, and I will more than happy to talk about them in a second. But I think mostly because other people weren't doing it, 
we knew that it was required. And yeah, that's probably why we decided to focus on that. And if it turned out that carbon removal technologies had a breakthrough, then that would be very big because it is the one thing that sort of matters to all decarbonization. If you find a cheaper way of removing carbon from the atmosphere, that wasn't necessarily the goal, but it is a very impactful thing if we can get the cost of removing carbon from the atmosphere down to a low number. Yeah, if you don't mind, I mean, maybe that's a nice lead in. Uh, it'd be great if you could talk a little bit about some of the companies you've backed in this area, just so that me and the listeners can get some context for what types of companies do this carbon removal and what types of companies get you guys excited in this area. Yeah. So in the last batch that ended just two months ago, we had two companies. The first one is called Pachama. Pachama was founded by two founders. One of the founders was a YC alum, Diego, and he had previously started a company making one of the first smart suitcase in the world. After he came back and he started talking to him about starting Pachama, he came to me with the idea that this is his life's work. This is the thing he wanted to do for the significant amount of time going forward. And he wanted to have real impact. He grew up in Latin America and have seen the deforestation of that part of the world. And he wanted to figure out how you can incentivize farmers to either not cut down the trees or to reforest the land that previously had been deforested. What was lacking was a clear incentive for those farmers on how to do this. They didn't know exactly why they would do that. Now, in several parts of the world, the European Union, parts of the US, California, and soon China, there are existing carbon markets where you can get paid to either remove or, in some cases, avoid carbon from being emitted in the atmosphere. And those are things that did not reach those, those farmers in Latin America. So he wanted to start a new marketplace for carbon removal. And I think this idea is very, it's in the center of the whole idea of carbon removal. Because if you have, if you are a founder, you have a new idea for a new crop that is extremely efficient at removing carbon from the atmosphere. Now, somehow you need to get paid. This needs to participate or exist in a market, whether that's a compliance market run by governments or a voluntary market where individuals or companies can participate. Any new idea needs to participate in some marketplace. So his idea was to start that marketplace. It's called Pachama. He's starting with probably one of the biggest, or if not the biggest, opportunity for carbon removal, which is planting trees. So trees have an enormous opportunity to remove carbon, both by not taking trees down and also by reforesting land. Now, the challenging part has been, how do you measure how much carbon is being stored in those trees? And how do you pay out the money and sort of like who gets paid for what? So his platform solves all of these things. And they use satellite technology and machine learning to try to predict the carbon intensity in a forest. And then as a result of that, they're able to pay out to those farmers as they're storing carbon in their forest. So their voluntary carbon price is somewhere between, I believe, like $8 and $15. And that's how much you can get paid per ton of CO2 that they can prove you are storing in your forest. So they're launching very soon. They've got an enormous amount of interest from like from buyers. So, so what I can tell for sure is that, and this we kind of knew before, is that there is enorm- like a very big interest for lots of participants in society to actually go carbon neutral. It's just not, it hasn't been very easy to do so. And one of the companies that we looked at was Stripe. If you go to stripe.com slash environment, they'll talk in detail how they went carbon neutral. And I know that it's not easy. It's not easy to, to do that in an organization, which it shouldn't be that complicated. So that's the first company, Pachama. Uh, the second company is called Prometheus Fuels. If you are familiar with carbon engineering, this is a very similar sort of outcome where the input is energy and it's CO2 and it's water and the output is fuel. And fuel in the sense that this is the kind of 
gasoline, high-performance gasoline that you can run in a car. And he also presented a demo day. Uh, he hasn't been as public as Pachama about what he's, he's working on, but it's basically a similar idea. And the whole purpose of, of Prometheus is that he will produce fuel in return, get carbon fuel credits so he can sell it cheaper and eventually sell it at market price. And that's a hard thing to do. If there is even a small chance that that would work, it would be a no-brainer investment for an investor because the potential value by creating cheaper fuel than gasoline is just, you can't even imagine how big it is. So if there's any chance that something like that might actually succeed, then that's very interesting for us. So those are the two companies we found in the last batch, and both of them focus on removing carbon from the atmosphere in some way. Uh-huh. So those companies, I mean, similar mission, but look very different from each other in terms of the actual solution. So do they get put through the same process with the same people as the rest of the Y Combinator companies, or is there a different set of expertise and or a different process required? So we don't have a specific track for climate change or carbon removal. What we do is we break up the batch in a number of groups. So typically we have four or five groups, and some groups are focused on hardware. Some of them are focused on bioengineering or biotech, and many of them are just focused on consumer and B2B SaaS. So the most likely outcome, if you apply with a more hardware-oriented idea, is that you could put in a group with a bunch of other hardware companies or maybe even like a subgroup of other chemical companies. If you apply as a marketplace, you might actually be put in a group of other marketplace companies or in Diego's case, with other SaaS companies because he effectively sells to businesses. That's sort of like, that's the customer. So there's nothing special about the carbon removal. I think what we wanted to accomplish is we actually wanted to fund founders that were passionate about these ideas, but to make them be exactly like all the other companies, that they will learn all the other things that all the other companies learn. There's no purpose in treating them differently, in my opinion. I think we need to treat them the same. And specifically, we need to make sure that they understand that the commercial expectations of them from the market after us are the same. There will be some optimistic investors, for sure, that are more passionate about this. But if you start treating these companies as something else than commercial companies, then I think it will only hurt them in the long run. Uh And so how do you evaluate, I mean, I guess there's vectors in terms of the traditional software investing that is more capital efficient and can compress the timelines to scale. And then some of the areas of climate change, at least the ones I've been looking at, there's more science risk, they're more capital intensive, there's longer time horizons. So how do you guys think about that when evaluating the right fit for YC from this area? Well, one of the things we think about is what are the chances that this company will raise money at Demo Day? And if you have a two-year assigned, if you're kind of halfway through your research and you have two years ahead of yourself kind of going forward, and at Demo Day, you will have nothing to show but some science, we, in general, it's, it's harder to get those companies funded. So I think it's pretty important that during YC, you spend quite a bit of time trying to think about what are the commercial aspects of what you're doing. Even if you're going to do science for continuous times, then thinking what the commercial impact of what you're doing, I think is really important. And that's certainly true for a category like the biotech companies who might not have a drug on the market for several years, but it's really important that they start thinking in terms of like, who are the customers? What does FDA process look like, et cetera? So I think we think about it in the same way for these companies. I would argue that even if you had a great technology for, say, using oceans to remove carbon from the atmosphere. It's unclear today, even if it was ready to go, how you take that to market. It's not clear that there is anything obvious to plug into. And I think it's better that we first build the infrastructure where these technologies can plug into, where the money that's flowing. And I think this is why one of the reasons I'm so excited for this 
is I think that the world will just come to census and start realizing that paying for fixing climate change is going to cost a lot of money. And that money is going to have to flow through a bunch of systems into either decarbonization or to removing carbon from the atmosphere. And there's going to have to be a lot of new companies because many of the companies in the past either don't exist or they're just not very good at this. And we need to have a software revolution in these companies as well. So going back to that example of it, of someone coming up with a new idea of storing carbon in the oceans, for example, it needs to plug into a system where there's money flowing into that technology to remove carbon. It needs to be easy to verify, transparent, and all those things. And this is sort of like what carbon removal or carbon offset markets have had a challenge with in the past. So I believe that there are a lot of opportunities right now to do things that are not like super expensive. Even in the case of Prometheus, they're not building big factories like carbon engineering. They're building small machines. How do you go about diligencing these companies given, I mean, it sounds from your stated focus, like you're a generalist organization. So does the diligence process in climate resemble the diligence process in any other aspects of YC that you're actively investing in? Or do you find that a different process is needed there? No, it's the same. It's the same. The most important diligence is on the founders themselves, because so many of the companies that come to YC don't really have sort of like something that's working. But besides that, we're asking people to submit a demo. We're asking people to submit videos of the things that they're working on and see if it's working. And to the extent we have to do more scientific diligence, we do that too. And we have some people now involved that have an expertise and background in that. But we're not taking the same level of a diligence that, let's say, a large fund would have because we just simply don't have the time. We learned so much about these companies during the batch that that, in some sense, like if someone was lying about what they were doing when they applied it will be very clear during the next four months because we will meet with you every week for four months. But no, the most important diligence is on the founders themselves and sort of like, what is their background? Do they seem credible to be able to do something like this? But it's not, we are a little bit different than other firms is that we fund primarily people and that's what we do when we fund them. And then in many cases, they become companies during the match, but they're not necessarily fully figured out companies when they apply to YC. How do you think about and? I mean, maybe this is a different frame than you think, but I think about kind of the insiders that have been working on climate for decades, and then the people like you and I that are the opposite of fair weather fans. We only come in when things get really bad. So I guess, how do you think about that when you look at your founding teams in this area? How important is industry expertise? A really good question and something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about because many of the founders that apply look a little bit different here. Like they have a different sort of background. And I don't want to be too generalizing here, but I would say that being, say, someone with experience from Silicon Valley, I think is actually very helpful here in terms of how quickly can you move into a working prototype? How quickly can you try to figure out the commercial value of what you're building? How lean can you make your operation? Many of the aspects that I would say have been good to entrepreneurships that come out of Silicon Valley are things that I want to see more of in these companies. It doesn't mean that you have to move extremely fast or like skip things in order to get things done. But that's one thing that there was a lack of. And some of the best founders, in my experience, are like many of the people that work for software startups actually don't have a software background. They might have studied physics or chemical engineering or mechanical engineering in university. But when they came to the job market, then it was Facebook and it was Airbnb and it was Stripe and all these companies they ended up working for, but that's actually not what their initial passion was. So that's a quite common background that I see is that someone actually have the skill sets from the beginning. They've just been doing other things for a while. So that's one of them. I think for the more research oriented teams, 
is the commercial viability and how fast you move and sort of like understanding how you can change your funding structure from mostly grants to in commercial investors. I think those are the three things that those kind of teams need the most help with. I've learned a lot about this. And I think what I was going to get to when, when you asked the question was, since we put out this request for startup, I've had probably a few dozen engineers that email me that work at great companies and ask me, where should I go and work? I want to work on climate change. I've also had extremely successful founders who have emailed us and said, I'm starting a company. I want to figure out these things. So I would say that forward-thinking people that see on the horizon what's going to happen are already starting companies and already thinking about this stuff to a very different degree than even just two years ago. I am actually very optimistic. And the best thing that we can do as an organization YC is both have the first companies that we fund be commercially successful, but at least do well in financing to show that this is a path to how you can get financing so you don't have to go that route of raising, of taking grants from the government. How much overlap is there between the financing players for these types of companies versus the other companies in YC, the more traditional software or Silicon Valley types of companies? You'd be surprised how high the overlap is. So I used to describe the Demo Day as people that come to Demo Day, um, this combination of, of course, is like a bunch of large funds. But in terms of the individual angel, angel investors that come to Demo Day, they are often successful founders who started software companies in the past and now are investing some of their own money. It turns out that that type of people are also very excited about solving climate change. And they are excited about using technology to do that. And they actually see that that's like a natural evolution. So those are the same people that fund our software companies that don't focus on this at all. So I would actually argue that it's exactly the same audience. There's some funds that are specifically focused on this, but they're not the majority of the investors. And if you look on, for example, we've had companies doing electric airplanes. They are being funded by the same kind of people that fund other software companies. We have had a number of other companies in green energy, for example, and is often funded by the same type of investors. I actually think that that's the strength of our demo day is that we have a different set of investors where you don't need to go to some very sort of expected five or 10 investors in your category and have a very long diligence process, but things can move a bit faster. And I think that's a huge strength of our demo day and of, of YC in general. Just like you don't need the typical type of investors with expertise in that category, you just need a new set of investors. Maybe it sounds dangerous, but I don't think that at all. I know it's pretty new, so maybe there's not enough data yet, but I mean, how does that look downstream once you get into later stage growth type of rounds? This is a great question. The short answer is we don't know yet. Similarly, we funded many, many new areas or categories of the world in technology, and each one of them have to be figured out by later stage investors. So the thing that's on the news right now is Latin America, where suddenly there's lots of money flowing into Latin America. When we started funding Latin American companies, there was nothing. There was almost no local investors, and there was no U.S. investors that ever would fly to Latin America to fund companies. Africa is the same thing, where like we funded now a number of very, very successful companies that are reaching Series B stage, maybe later. And I don't think the U.S. investors are flying to Africa to fund them. So we need to have a new investment ecosystem there. And the best thing that we can do is just to train investors, late stage investors, where they should be looking. And then I would tell them right now, if you're looking at Latin America, you're looking at Africa, there are some extremely healthy companies just based on their numbers doing really well. And I think the same will happen for these kind of companies that as long as they remain focused on the sort of like commercial outcome and they're trying to make money while solving climate change at the same time, the same type of investors that fund the software companies will eventually fund them. Maybe in the hardware case, it might be a little bit different, but for anything that's not entirely hardware, 
I think it will be very similar. Equally, I mentioned that it had a bunch of software engineers reach out to us. We've also had enormous amount of press and that enormous amount of investors that just wanted to learn about how to fund companies in this space. So I've been very optimistic just by the response from people I did not expect after we put out the request for startup about carbon removal of people that want to get into this space in some way. And I realized that YC had some amount of influence. So I'm happy that this is happening. And when you say investors want to learn how to invest in companies in this space, I guess earlier in this discussion, you'd said that, that it's not different. So is it different? And, and if so, how? Well, for a company like Pachama, I don't think it's different. I think what they're saying is that they're saying that there is, there's a market need, which is people and companies who wants to go carbon neutral. And just like there's a market need for a bunch of other things right now in the world, some things that may be known and some things that not be known to investors, there's a market need for this. And I have a little bit of advantage of coming from the Nordic countries, where I see this market need being 10x stronger than in many other places. The Nordic countries and then parts of Europe and then California is probably where this market need for solving climate change feels the strongest in the general sort of discussion. And you feel a very different thing when you travel to India, you travel to Indonesia or travel to other places where this is not a kind of topic that people are talking about in the same way. So if the world will go in the direction of parts of California or, or the Nordic countries, the market need for everything that companies and consumers need to make their part in solving climate change is going to come from, then as an investor, you just have to kind of discover this market need and believe in it and then figure out who are the companies that are best suited to serve it. And for example, let's say you are a company who wants to go carbon neutral. It doesn't have to be a software company. It can be a large retailer of some kind, and there are many of them. Now, if that's the market need, how do you do it? Well, you need to account for how much carbon you're emitting, and you have to find an easy, trustworthy, and transparent solution to pay for it, and then go carbon neutral. And then you have to figure out what what are the best companies to do that. I would argue that market need of companies and individuals wanting to go carbon neutral is actually very large, and the market is massively untapped. We just need better companies to do it. And I tend to ask people, like, what are the five companies you can mention before you've heard of Pachama, they would do this, and no one can mention any companies. So people can't even think of, like, what would be a good provider of that service of trying to make your organization go carbon neutral. And that, to me, suggests says everything, that there is just not enough good companies working on these things. And as an investor, once you figure that out, I don't think the rest is that different. I mean, there's some regulatory thing here that's going to play in. And to the extent that companies will, let's say, take companies for, as an example, will go carbon neutral because of demands from their boards or from the customers or from the government, I don't really know will be the driving force. I'll be maybe able to different forces in different parts of the world. But certainly there are regulatory driving forces in parts of the world, especially in Europe. And then you just need the most trustworthy and cheapest way to do it. For the Pachama set of companies, I think that makes sense. Some of the other companies, I don't know if you funded any in this area, but that were on your request for startups, the, the types of solutions, they feel almost more geoengineering focused, where it, it's not nearly as similar, at least on the surface, to the more traditional companies that you guys have backed over the years. So in those circumstances, the different rules apply. And I guess as a follow-up to that as well, where does regulation fit in and who should be the ultimate arbiter on when these technologies are ready to be commercialized so that, for example, there we can avoid unintended consequences that could actually be harmful to society? 
That's a good question. I don't think that we're trying to... I mean, obviously, like with anything you do in the world, there are potentially like things you can't predict. I don't think that we're trying to fund geoengineering. But let's say you are working as a bioscientist and you're figuring out a fungi that is extremely good at capturing carbon. And there is a safe place where that can survive. And that's at the cost compared to other efforts. It will be an extremely efficient way for humanity to, to remove carbon from the atmosphere. I believe that we would probably fund that if we believe that it's extremely effective. Let's say you're gene modifying a tree that is like 10x more efficient at capturing carbon. There's going to have to be some body that regulates that. I don't have an expertise for every country in the world which body that would be. But sure, like I don't think that I'm certain that the founders of Pachama, for example, do not want to create monocultures of biodiversity just because they're paying people to remove carbon. So ultimately, I think it's a shared responsibility of governments and these companies. But I think in some of the more out there proposals that we had on carbon.ycarbon.com, the idea was more to inspire a different set of people to work on these things that typically wouldn't even explore it. Because I do think that there are other disciplines, like especially chemical engineering and bioengineering, where they can actually make a huge impact into some of these technologies. We just haven't really seen it yet. So that was initially kind of the idea why we did it. It was we want to inspire a different set of people to come up with these new ideas. I think it's important to work on just traditional carbon removal for now, because if we don't do that, and if we don't solve climate change, I think there is a risk that some countries will eventually take on much more riskier solutions when their countries are underwater. So it's very important that we work on the things that we know are safe right now, and planting trees is safe, and many of the things that, that these companies are working on is, is extremely safe. Like, it's unsafe to do what we've been doing for the last few hundred years. But if we don't do them, I think there's a higher risk that people will take to more riskier bets. And it's not something we would fund, but, but I can see how some desperate people, desperate countries would do that. Well, one counter argument that I've heard is that there's a difference between funding deployment of these technologies versus funding research. And that by not funding research, it's actually making it harder to regulate appropriately to keep those rogue nations from doing that because the regulatory bodies wouldn't really understand its capabilities or its limitations. How do you think about that? Do you draw that similar distinguishment, if that's a word, from deployment to research? And do you have a different opinion about the research or where do you come out? I don't think we have a great experience of funding research as part of our program. It's just not something, it typically doesn't go... Put your program aside. I, I'm more getting at, should this research be funded by somebody and, and are you a proponent of that personally? Oh, I don't even know if I've thought of that. I mean, I haven't thought about it too deeply. I'm not like inherently opposed to it for any specific reason. I haven't thought about that question in, in particular, but I would say that there is a lack of money in research and the question whether that's going to come from private or government is an interesting one. Like I would love to see a lot more money coming from the government into these things for sure. And I think we don't really get involved until there's at least some idea of like what the market might be. And I know there's been a lot of interest in YC funding research because we funded research in the past with our universal income basic study. I don't think in this case that we are the best organizations set up to do this. I think we're a great organization set up to take research ideas that are ready to go to market into the market and to investors. I think that's what we do really well. I don't think that we're set up to fund research right now in that space. Yeah, I wish we were, but I don't think we are. Well, I read somewhere that you were encouraging people maybe working on nonprofit initiatives in this area. Is that true? Yes. So we funded nonprofits for a while. 
we have a couple learnings from funding nonprofits. The first nonprofit that we funded was Watsi, and that was 2013. So it's been about how many years? Six years since we started funding nonprofits. The thing that we have learned about nonprofits is to have a really, really big impact on society. Relying on donors is not a good way to have that impact. I mean, it's possible. It's just not a great way. So it's better, even if you're a nonprofit, to rely on revenue or if you're charging someone for something. Or at least you're not relying on big money donors. So you have to go out and spend most of the year raising funding or applying to grants. It doesn't scale very well. It works well when you're maybe two or three people. But when you're a few hundred people, it doesn't work well. The second thing that we've learned is technology can play a huge impact into nonprofits. So not a criteria, but a very common thread among the nonprofits we funded in the last couple of years has been that they've used technology to achieve their goals. So an example of that is Tarjimli. Tarjimli is a platform where volunteers can translate for refugees in refugee camps. All you need to have is a phone with Facebook Messenger and the same have to happen on the other end. And you can be within a minute a volunteer translator for a refugee. That's a technology-driven nonprofit. There's no way you can make a profit of refugees. And that's something that works really well that we would like to fund. I think there are historical set of nonprofits that we're unlikely to fund because of how they look in their structure and the things that I mentioned. It doesn't mean that we're not opposed to nonprofits, but I think that in some cases, when people apply to nonprofit, we try to question them and be like, are you sure that this is best done as a nonprofit if your goal is to achieve change in the world? And we try to convince them to do either a for-profit or something in between. What was it? There was a pretty well-known political one that you guys took in as part of your class a year or two ago, right? Which one was that? Well, we funded ACLU and we funded vote.org. That's the one I was thinking of, right? Is there a comparable in the climate fight? Would that be interesting? Like if Sunrise Movement came to you guys, do you have a reaction to to them or Extinction Rebellion or any of these other grassroots? I think ACLU was a quite an ex- exception in the type of nonprofits that we funded. It doesn't actually look like most of the ones that we fund on a regular basis. We funded Good Food Institute in a similar way, where they are focusing on promoting plant-based and clean meat in the world. If a climate change or, or carbon removal nonprofit came to us, and like I mentioned, they weren't long-term relying on big donors and they use technology in some way, then absolutely, I think we would consider it. I don't think that we do very well for nonprofits that look like a traditional nonprofit, where the entire goal of YC is to raise more donations. I don't think that we help them very much, unless they have a very strong ambition to change it into something else. But sure, I think that we could do that. I, we're open to it. I would argue that nonprofit is often viewed as a way to have sort of like big change in the world without being conflicted by your profit motives. But in many of the cases of the things that we funded, the profit motive is completely aligned with the long-term change you want in the world. I think that there are many companies we've funded, the clean meat companies, their, their goal is to make plant-based food and clean meat. And they are doing that for profit, which I think Beyond Meat went public the other week and is a great example of how you can have a really ambitious plan, which has a potentially massive impact for our climate and be a for-profit company. I, don't, I think that people make a mistake if they start thinking that good for the world means non-profit. I think that's a huge mistake. I agree to some extent. I think the, well, I do agree. But one thing I worry about is that the interest can align with your business model and mission for some time, or maybe even for a long time, but it isn't guaranteed that it always will. And I mean, I think Facebook's a good example of that, where at some point, there's no guarantee that they won't be at odds. And it's actually likely that at some point they will be at odds. And I think that's really where the friction occurs. And I'm not necessarily saying that 
means that you can have a huge impact in the private sector, but it's just personally something that I worry about. I'd rather have Facebook with great regulation than no Facebook and a bunch of nonprofits trying to do the same thing. I just think that in that case, it was probably a regulatory failure, partly. Again, I, I want to give you a very concrete example. So if you're a nonprofit and you're going to hire engineers, well, you're limited to the engineers that are interested in working for nonprofits and are not interested in the motive of getting good salary or good equity. So that limits the number of people you can hire, which in turn limits the impact you can have as an organization. So there are many downsides to it. And I think people should be aware of those downsides and do a nonprofit if that's the only thing that you can do to impact that type of change. But in many of the cases, I think having a for-profit motive is not in the short term, at least, in conflict with what you're trying to accomplish. I have just a couple other quick questions on the YC side and then maybe one one personal question. On the YC side, just one question is where government fits in. Let me stop there. Where does government fit into this equation? The the ARPA ease with grants or because I, I know some of the harder tech types of opportunities, oftentimes the non-dilutive grant capital can be an important mechanism. And so how do you guys think about that? Yeah. So many of the companies, especially in biotech, for example, have relied on grant money from big national organizations. In the carbon space, I can imagine something similar. I don't think that we will have a very active government relations, if that makes sense. I think we meet with government organizations on a regular basis, but I don't think they will have an active... It's not sort of like what... Usually, I I don't think that that is sort of like the critical point that makes these companies successful. Is that a stage thing where it will be very important later on, presuming success in these early stages, but that's for the scaling companies and the later stage investors to deal with? I think so. If you look on our experience from Airbnb and the amount of public policy people that we hired at Airbnb, there was like two or something like that when I I joined and there was 300 people at Airbnb when I joined. So it might be a stage thing where these policy teams are something you build up over time. I don't think it's ever a good idea to have like critical sort of like reliance on government regulations from an early on stage. It's not good. It doesn't mean that selling to governments is a bad business. I actually think that it's a fantastic business and it's changing very fast. But you have to be very aware of how government is organized and how, how slow they are. And they're not necessarily always a great buyer of things. It's not necessarily what I had in mind for when I think about government relations here. I think of more what are the policies and things that need to change? What are the kind of laws that need to live up to? In the case of Pachama, as an example, let's take a very practical one, I'm sure that the thing that matters to them is going to be how do you plug into the large compliance carbon market in the world. That might be a very important, or maybe for both of those companies or other companies in the future, there might be uh, industry organizations that fight for more climate, like sort of like a carbon tax or carbon incentives. That might make sense as well for both of them. I don't really know. But in terms of regulatory environment, I think, I mean, the, for example, low carbon fuel standards, relatively easy things to figure out. It's not like you need to hire a lot, lots of people to figure that out. So I don't think we have a strong view for these companies in particular, but I would say that, let me put it this way. From my experience from YC is that the very fastest moving potential customers or partners that you might have are other startups. Second to that are other companies. And third to that is governments. So it's never the fastest moving kind of organization that you want to rely your business on. So it's not something you would prioritize right away because it involves a huge amount of risk. So if I was, let's say, if I was Prometheus Fuels, and I have no idea if this is what they're planning on or not, but if I was them and I went trying to sell fuel, in the beginning, I would do what Impossible Foods do, which is go to a high end, try to find my customers who are willing to pay a bit more for their fuel, 
if it's carbon neutral and then go to high-end sort of like places where I can partner with maybe Whole Foods or something like that, where you can sell that fuel. Whole Foods is a bad example. Like some way where you're going after the small niche private market and not trying to go after government right away, because I think it'll be sort of like much more difficult. Similar to the Tesla strategy where they went after high net individuals to sell their first cars, I think is a good way to get started. And if I was Pachama, I would go after fast-moving startups with a good conscience that wanted to go carbon neutral, and then maybe bigger companies with the same motive versus going after trying to change the government or policies and stuff right away, because it's going to take a lot longer time. It's a lot more riskier. And the last YC focus question was more around, you talked about market-based and how the costs would keep coming down as these companies scale. I've heard some people in the industry, actually a number of people say that for certain types of solutions, they're important to the carbon fight, but that until there's a price on the externalities and there's actually a price put on the emissions that some of the other fuels are doing, or at least getting rid of the fossil fuel subsidies, that it won't be a level playing field and the best technology from an emission standpoint won't win. Do you actively avoid those areas or do you see building into them, assuming that at some point that price comes? I Well, I, I can't tell you what I personally believe. I personally believe that the carbon prices are going to go up. So the fees or the taxes around the world are going to go up. And it will happen country by country or maybe uh, regions by regions, but they will go up. That is my long view of things, which means that many of these things will, and there are many governments in the world, so there's many potential markets where this might happen earlier. If you look at Tesla in Norway, where they have amazing subsidies for electric cars. Electric cars is 50% of the new markets of the new cars sold. So if you believe it will happen, albeit slowly, in some markets first, then it's just something that you should kind of take the account that it, that it will happen. And if you look on solar panels, that the reason that we have solar panels today that are to be able to be market competitive with other sources of energy is a combination of the subsidies of Germany and China and what they did for a long period of time in pushing down the cost of the panels being produced. We might need that things for some other technologies. I don't think that investors are going to be excited about investing into something that is on the consumer or buyer level, like 80% funded by subsidies. I don't think it's the kind of risk that they are willing to take. I think they rather want to see a scenario, and this is sort of the kind of model that I want to see when companies come in and apply to YC, is sort of like, what is the, what's the things that have to turn right for this to be competitive on a market level price? So if you're removing carbon from the atmosphere, how do you make sure that what you're doing actually can beat trees or they can beat soil carbon or something like that? Because I don't think that you can raise a lot of money. We're not the best funder of a, something that'll cost a, a billion dollars before you go to market. We're not the kind of organization you should fund that through. You should find another way of funding that. We're not the best one. At least if it's at the end of that, there's a potential reliance on government subsidies. So yeah, I think we will very quickly start to pay for the higher cost of the carbon that we emit. It's not necessarily a great political strategy, in my opinion, but it is a really good market strategy to get industry to do the right thing. And I believe that it will happen. I'm not sure that it will happen in the US right away, but I will believe that it will happen in some market. And many of the companies that I've seen here actually have the Nordic markets as some of the first customers. Some of the most progressive, say, old companies, energy companies are in Norway. Oh, yeah. Okay. So like, it's not just because those are the only countries in the world that care, but they just happen to be a few years earlier, I think. And it's not crazy that if you make electric airplanes, that you sell them to Scandinavia first, because they also seem to care a lot. And like gas and fuel are extremely expensive there. So if you have another means of powering your car or your vehicle, 
And those might be great market too. So yeah, I think it will happen. I'm not too worried about it. I think you do the best when you don't rely on this. So you have a real, like you have to fight really hard. And I think that we've seen that on and on again, that people can do a lot more than they think. And history is not necessarily a good predictor of how much you can able to achieve in your space. So my last question, Gustav, is more of a, a personal one. And it's actually one that I would be interested to ask you with or without the microphone on. But I mean, something that I wrestle with is just that this really does feel to me like an existential crisis. And it's hard for me to imagine working on anything that isn't related to decarbonization, especially given that I'm fortunate enough to have some flexibility to choose what I work on. And I guess given that this is some percentage of your time, but not the full percentage of your time, is that something that you wrestle with? And how much of a pickle do you think we're in? And how do you reconcile those things? So I'll make an analogy to Sweden. In Sweden, there's a huge debate right now whether you should fly at all, or you should take the train, or the amount of sacrifices you should do in your life to live a carbon-free life. I grew up, I've been a vegetarian for 25 years of my life. I recently learned that the percent of vegetarians in society has been steady at 5% for the last 100 years. So for those 25 years, I remember there's been many, many, many organizations or for the last 100 that were fighting for people to become vegetarians. They haven't done so well. They haven't been very successful in convincing others to be vegetarians. Maybe because it's a sacrifice that most people are not willing to do. So I believe that, let's say, even half of Sweden would make the sacrifice of sacrificing loss in their in their life to live a less carbon impactful life. I don't think it's something that everybody is willing to do. No matter how much you want that, it's not going to happen. So what will happen, or what is a better bet in my opinion, is that we come up with a bunch of new technologies that changes the game. If you can grow plant-based food or plant-based burgers that taste like meat or grow real meat in a bioreactor, that is the kind of technology change that will make all those people trying to convince people to be vegetarians are completely obsolete because you don't need to do that. You can continue eating meat the way you've been doing before. It's just not meat that causes enormous amount of emissions. Similarly for other things in life, I think the best thing that we can do is put a lot of money and smart people on technology and motivate them in, in, in the right way. For, for every great entrepreneur that comes to me and say, like yourself, this is my life, life's work. I am so passionate about this and I can't think of anything more important for the next 20 years to work on than this. That makes me a lot more hopeful than for every person that comes to me and say, I'm going to give up flying because they can have the kind of technology change in society that will change it for everybody, not just the people that are convinced. And not only that, those are potentially good companies to start. There's a bunch of things that are positive with that versus just trying to go around the world, convince people to change the lifestyle. I think it's a much harder thing to do. And I can't think of a really great example where just down to people's lifestyles changes, big societal change happen. I think you need systematic change, you need legal change, you need a bunch of different things that need to change than just people's opinions uh, or people sort of like restraining themselves. I don't really believe in that. It doesn't mean that like that sends sort of a moral signal. I don't, just don't believe in it. I think that the best chance we have to make this change is to just fund lots and lots of people they're working on things that are going to decarbonize our society. And I think that in some sense, YC is a combination of a bunch of crazy bets. Who knows if they really work out? And a bunch of more safer bets, which are the safer bets are more typical like the SaaS B2B companies. And for every SaaS B2B companies, we can do some crazy bets because they sort of allow us to fund more things. But I think we need to do both because otherwise 
if YC would just stay and fund the things we fund in the very beginning, like consumer internet, we'd have a much smaller YC right now because consumer internet isn't very big right now. And if YC have expanded to hardware and biotech and SaaS and B2B and enterprise, that allowed us to have a bigger impact on the world. So until funding carbon removal or climate change kind of investments is the biggest market, we're going to have to do many other things to sustain ourselves to be able to do that. So I don't think that it would be right to just go all in on this. And again, it's not just about a funding problem. It's inspiring founders to work on this thing. And I believe you need to be in the mainstream. The kind of founders I want to start these companies are people that haven't worked on these things in the past because there just aren't that many people have done in the past. We need new people. So for that reason, I believe that it's really important for me to be in the mainstream of technology and for YC to be in the mainstream of technology. There's no conflict here. And I don't think it would be good use of my time to go and be sort of more narrow. Well, I thought this was a really fascinating discussion. I definitely learned a lot. And for what it's worth, I'm glad that you guys are here. It's early, but we need more shots on goal. We need more learning. And I like the ambition and I like the focus. So I'm glad that you came on the show and I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing. So please keep it up. Thank you so much. Thanks for organizing this podcast. There are not that many great podcasts or not that many at all around this topic. And I've been listening to all of them. (laughs) And just to kind of get a sense for what goes on in the world, I have a feeling that in a year from now, there'll be so much kind of buzzing in this space that like you won't be able to follow everything that's going on. But at this point, I feel like in many cases, you're able to follow everything because it still feels pretty small. But I think it's just the thing that we'll go through. And then soon there'll be so many people that we'll meet that work on these things that we can't even keep count. Well, that's my bet as well. And my hope also both selfishly and for the good of the world. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.